Here we are, Monday, December 11. Welcome, everyone. Good friend Michael Kramer's in the house. Looking forward to a stimulating discussion. Um, I picked that piece, for those of you that don't know the backstory on that, um, aren't as old enough to have been around so much. Let's pick up the pieces by the Average White Band, which came out in 1974, released in the UK in 1974. Um, but in the US, it really took hold and hit the top of the charts. I'm reading here, uh, in February 22nd, 1975, it went to the top of the charts in the U.S. Billboard magazine rated it as the number one, number 20 song in 1975. Um, and also made, up the pieces, made it to number 11 in the U.S. disco charts. This was interesting, a little bit of backstory I thought was appropriate. Talking about the lyrics here, which are barely um, audible. Um, talking about the, uh, uh, here I'm just reading from Wikipedia. So the shouts of pick it's it says um it's about picking yourself up when things aren't going well. We'd spent a lot of time we spent a lot of time making no money whatsoever. So it felt felt very relevant. So I thought that was timely. I mean, Michael, you and I were uh, kibitzing a little bit before the call started about, you know, it was a frustrating year, no doubt. Um so at any rate, uh before we get started, um you see, I got uh, this date in history here, and I just find it. Where did it go? I may have picked out my three dates. So, number one, uh, in 1941, Adolf Hitler declared war um, on the United States following the um, Japanese attacks on the U.S. So that was in 1941. In 19, and sorry, in two, year 2000. God, it's hard to believe this much time has passed. In 2000, the U.S. Supreme Court effectively awarded the presidency to George W. Bush, ruling that a fair recount of the ballots in Florida could not be performed by the deadline for certifying the state's electors. And then the last one, there were so many to pick from here. On December 11th, 2008, again, where does all the time go? Financier Bernie Madoff is arrested in New at his New York apartment in charge of masterminding a Ponzi scheme, which was later estimated to involve about $65 billion, making it one of the largest frauds in Wall Street history. I think they actually recovered pretty much most, if not all, the money. Anyway, those are three dates in history. So there we are. So, Michael, um, good to good to see you. Good to hear from you. Uh, welcome. Um, you and I caught up in person uh, a few weeks ago. Um, How's, uh, what's no, I'm sure you're probably happy to see the year come to an end. Um, and there's a lot to talk about, but uh, I'll turn the floor to you. What's top of mind for you? What's noteworthy? And uh, we'll just get into it. And hopefully we have some good questions from uh, the rest of the room. So go for it, Michael. Floor is yours. Um, thanks, George. And uh, thanks for having me. I haven't done one of these actually in a couple of months, but, um, you know, it seemed like a, a good opportunity to, to do this with you. And, um, it seemed right. So, I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the market, obviously it's, it's been a, a challenging year, uh, for a number of reasons, because, uh, what I think is the most, uh, difficult part, uh, for me or what's really been, you know, eating away at me now for a couple of months is that, um, you know, obviously, uh, my view that inflation would stay sticky you know, it, would be in, it wasn't going to come down as quickly as Wall Street was estimating last year, that, you know, interest rates were likely to go higher, that the Fed wasn't done, you know, 
all of those things, which were hard enough in itself to kind of think through the thought process of and, uh, and, and to get right. Right. Cause I think that that in itself was really not easy to do, but then to have that macro backdrop really correct and then have the S and P 500 just sort of act in the manner in which it way in the way it's acted has certainly, you know, been, uh, difficult because obviously, you know, when you're trying to do this, or at least when I'm trying to do this, right, I'm not looking to get three out of four things right. I'm looking to get four out of four things right. And, um, you know, so I, I think that that's really been hard for me this year. And and while I've been positioned, you know, correctly, and because I'm a long-only investor, and I, I stuck with my, with my guns of, you know, owning high-quality names and, and being defensive and, and holding cash, and all those things worked out well for me, despite, you know, my bearish view. Um, I think that um, the market fundamentals just really, this was one of the years where, you know, I think I remember a couple of years that really stood out to me. Um, you know, 2018 stood out to me because in 2018, a lot of people were looking for recession. And I, I was one of the, the bullish people in 2018. Many people don't know that. But I was saying there wouldn't be a recession, and no one really followed me at that point in my career because uh, I was still fairly new. And um, you know, I was calling for 2019 to be a great year, and it ended up being that. And uh, everyone, that was kind of the rally that that nobody believed in in 2019. Um, but then, and then of course came you know the the 2020 pandemic, and. And of course, I turned bearish during that period of time because, you know, of the uncertainty that surrounded the um, the potential economic impacts that we were going to have. And obviously, I had I, there hadn't been a pandemic in a hundred years, and there weren't many people that had lived through one previously. Um, you know, I underestimated the ability of the Fed, and the, the, really, what was missing. What came together, which had been missing for the last decade, was really monetary policy in conjunction with physical policy, which we didn't have during the 2010s. And that really came together to create a very strong economy in 2021. And by the end of 2020, I had recognized that, you know, you know, oil was at 80 and it had been at zero. Right. So all of a sudden you were going to start seeing inflation because commodity prices had all gone through the roof. And and that and rates were going to start going up. And, and so I, I realized that and I was thinking already about that going into 2021. And, and the market kept going up because it didn't it just sort of ignored the rising rates. It ignored the worries of inflation. Uh, but then when the Fed you know, started saying it's ending QE, it became too much to not ignore. Uh, and I think if you had asked anyone at the start of 2022, hey, the Fed's going to raise rates to 535 basis points. Where do you think the index is going to be at the end of 2023? I think anyone would have said we're probably going to be down 40 or 50 percent because the Fed will never the Fed will never be able to pull something like that off. And uh, and and, you know, if you had lived through other periods of time, 2018, 2016, parts of 2011, 2008, every time, you know, the market, every time the Fed did something the market didn't like, the market went down. And this was really the first time that I can think of in, 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 the, in the 30 years that I've been following the market that you've had a market actually rally despite the Fed raising rates. 
<laughs> and almost like giving the Fed like uh, the big FU the whole way. And and I think that's what's really the most uh, challenging, you know, part of this is that this market, which tells you a couple of things right off the top, it just tells you how much liquidity is still in the system, because despite you know rates being higher and and the Treasury issuing God knows how much money, there's still so much money left over that it has no place else to go really, but into stocks and still go and still have eight hundred billion dollars a day going into a Fed. Re- repo facility. And I think that's really, you know, again, the driving story of this year, because that's the only piece that's sort of left to, to take away from it with. Right. So staying with that, um, you know, past this prologue, uh, shoulda, coulda, woulda, we're turning the page in a new year in a few weeks. Where, where do you try, trying to get rid of, you know, recency buy inside of your head? Where do you think we stand now? Well, I mean, you know, this rally that we've had off the lows in October, to me, is just, it's almost more fabricated than the rally we had, you know, starting, you know, at the end of May when we went up uh, kind of uh, in that fashion. This was even faster. Um, At that time, I had identified that we were basically in, you know, a short volatility trade and they were just dispersing it across the seven names a short volatility dispersion trade. And, and I recognize that. And I, I realized that we were probably going to reverse to come all the way down. And sure enough, we did for a day and we held there. I would have liked a couple of weeks to just sit there and have done nothing to have more time to think about things. But, you know, then clearly the market got short too much gamma and the negative gamma creates a lot of volatility in the market and it created a vicious short covering rally and systematic funds had become very short the market. Uh, and when the market got the short covering rally, it forced systematics to cover. Once they covered, they got their buy signals that took it up. And that's why we kind of topped out around this 4550 area, basically the 4550, 4, because that's where the, you know, the big gamma levels are. And, and that's sort of where we are. So, I mean, from that perspective, I, I still think we're going to retrace and revisit 4100 before this is all said and done, right? Um, and then I think going in the next year, it really becomes more of a story of liquidity because, you know, we have $820 billion left in the repo facility that's going to it's gonna go to zero, right? I mean, the Treasury is going to issue, I think I heard, you know, $1.2 trillion or something in the first quarter. So we, we're going to be $400 billion short, right? I mean, I know some money will come into the repo between now and year end. Uh, because of quarter end and everything, but and year end, but basically starting Jan one, let's say the repo facility goes back to eight hundred billion, you know you're gonna you're gonna have you're gonna run out of money is gonna be drained pretty quickly out of there if the treasury really goes ahead with that sort of plan, um, and then of course where does the money come from to continue to fund the government, uh, and, and so my concern there is that it's going to come out of stocks, but but really the biggest issue I I, I see next year is that. Again, going back to fundamentals, because now liquidity shouldn't be a factor anymore in theory, right? Um, then what my feeling is at that point is that you're paying 19 times earnings, next year's earnings, for what's supposed to be 10% growth. Well, I mean, if inflation is coming down and it, let's say it settles around 3%, uh, right, and it doesn't quite make it to two all the way in 2024, um, you know, 
I can see us growing sales by four or five percent. I just can't see margins expanding by twelve and a half percent and earnings growing by ten. I know you can get some, you know, earnings growth through buybacks. By the way, this year I think was the um, the third largest buyback year, but it was smaller than twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two, which says that maybe the buybacks are starting to slow. Um, and 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 of course, you know, when you look at average hourly earnings, there's still obviously people getting raises. They're growing now at a faster rate than inflation. So, you know, does higher wages, higher medical costs, do those things begin to erode margins further? And, you know, can really the Magnificent Seven duplicate the year that they had this year? And it really raises a lot of questions because, I mean, let's face facts. I mean, the economy is slowing. Uh, if Fed policy works with lags, right, which I'm a little skeptical of, um, but if it does work with lags today, uh, then I would think that we should continue to see further economic slowdown. And if we get it further, I think we're going to skirt very close to a recession in 24. I wasn't looking for one in 23. And again, I think that makes it harder for earnings growth to, to get that number. And then you're left with I don't know, the market's estimating $242 a share at 19 times, you get the number where we are today. But if we do 230 times, which is only about 5% growth, you know, you're, you're talking, yeah. you know, you're talking lower prices. And it all then goes to where are rates and where are multiples, right? I don't think we're going to trade at 19 for, right. for, a, for a long period of time. So, my, 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 Michael, you and I were talking uh, earlier, and, uh, and you look a lot at credit spreads. So let's turn to spreads and to bond yields um so I, I think you were saying you thought spreads are kind of too tight and yields are, are at a level where you think they're heading up so maybe contextualize your equity deal a little bit by speaking a bit more on what you're thinking about spreads and bond yields from here um so it, it's really interesting because I, I post a lot about the cdx high yield spread index and you know, that's been pretty much in a range between 400 and 600, uh, I would say, since the, the spring of 22. Every time we've gotten the 400, we've, we've gone up and we've gone back to, you know, up towards that 550, 600 level. And then we come back down again, right? And so we're sitting right at 400 now. I mean, we've been holding that level. If you read my newsletter, which I, I put out a free newsletter every night. I posted on my on my on my Twitter handle and I've talked about this that we're just sitting there and it seems like we're just sitting there waiting for the Fed to find out whether or not they're going to let, you know, this whole thing go or not um, and really let credit spreads collapse or if credit spreads are going to start to widen. And, you know, if credit spreads, you know, begin to widen, if the CDX high yield index starts going higher it's going to be a, a sign of uh, credit spreads widening, financial conditions tightening. That's going to basically mean that stock prices go down. In fact, I, I've gotten as far as taking the S&P 500 earnings yield. You take the current earnings yield of the S&P 500, and then you overlay it with the CDX high yield index. It's the same chart. <laughs> it's the same exact thing. They, they track each other perfectly. And so if you take the CDX high yield index and it goes higher, then the S&P 500 earnings yield will go higher and the S&P 500 will go down. And if we go back up to, let's say, 550, 600, you're talking about a market that's probably going to be closer to that 4,100 number I'm talking about. 
um, if they break down and credit spreads really begin to narrow and go back to levels they were at similar to in 2021, then the market's just going to go off to the races. There's just nothing stopping it at that point from going up because that will be the sign that the Fed is just totally rolled over and it's going to let the market do what it wants. But when I look at the technical charts of the 10-year, you know, we look and we see that, you know, the 10-year is basically sitting on a trend line, on a downtrend, very close to breaking out. Tomorrow you have a 30-year auction. You have, you know, the RSI is on a downward sloping trend. It looks like that's ready to break out. The 30-year looks similar. Um, you know, the 30-year auction last month was horrible, but everyone blamed it on the uh, ICBC Bank in China. They were running around midtown Manhattan with UBS stick, USB sticks uploading files. I, I don't know what the story was, but everyone blamed the, the bad auction on that. On that. Uh, so if there's a bad auction tomorrow, you know, that will say a lot about the last month auction. Um, and I, I think there's a good chance that, you know, rates retrace some of their loss. I don't know if they're going to go back to their high, but I certainly can make a strong technical case for the 10 year to go back to 470 which would be the 61.8% retrace from the high to this recent low. Right. Michael, I, I just posted, as, as, you, as you follow these markets very uh, closely, I'd be curious as to your reaction. I just posted, I put it in my feed, I just put it into the nest, um, the CNN fear and greed indicator against the S&P. And it's kind of interesting how it's almost tick for tick. I mean, it's off by a little bit, but it follows very, mirrors very closely the S&P, you know, you tell me what the market's doing, I'll tell you what sentiment's doing. Right. It's, it's sort of this reflexive thing. And there was, as you mentioned before, there was a huge short position earlier, you know, go back a month or two in equities and bonds. And we had Larry Gentleman here a couple of weeks ago, and he was pointing out, you know, there's a lot of covering to be done. And I'm just kind of curious, to the extent you, you look at positioning and so on, you follow this, you know, really closely. Do you think um, we're largely done with a lot of this short covering, covering around that we've seen? You said it's a, you said it was, yeah. yeah, it's cool. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. So I, 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 you know, I follow, you know, all this stuff as closely as I can. Um, and from what I understand, you know, the systematic funds are done. The corporate buyback period is over. Uh, that window closed and it's not coming back till mid January. Uh, there's, uh, if you remember in October, we had a lot of, you know, a lot of year end, as you know, mutual funds were ending their year end in October. I read 1.7 trillion worth of assets under management ended their year in October. I read that there's another 1.5 trillion that end their year in December. So, you know, if you think that, you know, if down, October was a down year because of selling, uh, was a down month because of selling and there's almost an equal amount of you know, assets under management coming to close the year out in December. I mean, it's possible that you could get a wave of selling over the next, um, you know, week or two. And and then on top of it, you know, like I talked about earlier, the big gamma levels up there around 4,600 or so. That's why we keep just sort of mean reverting. Um, and then right below that, right, right around 4550 or so, you flip back into negative gamma below that level. And then the CTAs are living right around 4450. So if you get down in that 4450 range, those CTAs who were just got long are now going to become sellers of the market. Right. And this whole thing is just going <laughs> to do itself all over again, but the so, other way. Right. So let's just let's just round out the rest of the macro landscape. Uh, so you think spreads likely to go higher, not lower? 
bond yields higher, not lower. Um, you and I chat a little bit earlier. Your thoughts on the dollar and possibly the oil price. What, is, what do the charts look like to you? So I think the dollar goes higher from here. It just bounced off the 61.8% retrace of the the move of the re, of the of the from the low that we were, came off of over the summer. And I mean, it looks like from a technical standpoint, it has an inverted head and shoulders to me, which suggests it goes higher. Uh, then if you just think about it from a fundamental standpoint, I mean, I don't know what's going on with some of the markets in Europe, but from what I understand, you know, uh, Europe isn't really in the greatest shape. Uh, we certainly know China's not in good shape. Uh, and if it wasn't for the fact that they, you know, controlled their currency uh, and basically capped it out at 717 when it was trading at 730 to the dollar, you know, you probably have a stronger uh, dollar versus the uh, renminbi. And I don't know what the Bank of Japan is is doing because it seems like one day they want to raise rates, one day they don't want to raise rates. Um, and so I would I would say that the dollar is just a, slight, a flight to safety at this point, like the cleanest dirty shirt. And and I think the dollar goes higher back up towards 106 on the index. And, you know, in terms of oil, oil is really sort of a mixed bag at this point. I mean, when you think about it, it should be going higher given that they're cutting production like they are, but it keeps going lower. And I think it's going lower because of weakness out of China, which makes sense. Right. And um, and so I, I think oil right now, the, the trend is just says it's lower at this point. OK, now moving to maybe under the hood of the market, um, you mentioned while despite your negative view on the market overall, you've actually made some money because you've been long the right stocks. As, right. A saying, as the saying goes, some market stocks. So does anything jump out to you sectorally or factor-wise? Um, you know, clearly, if you weren't in the Magnificent Seven, the other 493 stocks haven't done a whole lot this year. As we look ahead, is there anything there stick, that's, there that sticks out to you? Like, you still want to be in those stocks or those are stocks to avoid? Um, you know, some have made the case that the rest of the market's not going to catch up simply because the earnings growth isn't there. In fact, earnings expectations are now, excuse me, starting to be revised down. I know many have been looking for the market to broaden out here in the second half of the year. Okay, the last couple of weeks, maybe it has. And there's some promising signs. Who knows if this trend has legs? But as you look at the market, whether it's by industry or by factor or market cap, anything occur to you that looks particularly interesting or areas you'd like, areas you don't like? Um, so it's very clear right now there's a rotation out of growth to value and that you can see when you just take the SPYG and divide it by the SPYV, um, which is interesting because that ratio typically follows the NASDAQ very closely and the two have diverged over the last like three weeks, which I, I don't know what to make of. Um, but I, I think like, you know, uh, the market, basically, you're right. And when you take out when you take out the top seven stocks and you look at the equal weight S&P 500 earnings, there's no growth. Right. And that's why that index has done that equal weighted RSP hasn't really performed very well this year. Um, and And so like what I'm. What I'm really most interested in, uh, from my perspective, is 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 <laughs> as odd as this is going to sound, it's waiting for some of these names that are the real growers over the long term uh, 
to come down to valuations that make more sense. And what I mean by that is like, I want to be in things that have recurring revenue streams that have very strong margins and, you know, can really have and really have a very large moat around them. And right now, I can't really find anything that makes sense from a valuation standpoint that I want to own like right now and run out and buy it because I think it's going to go higher for the next five or 10 years without interruption. I made that horrible mistake in 2015 and I regretted it for the next two years. Um, and so what I try to do is I just put a list of stocks that I like together, you know, 20 names or so. And then I just come up with the ways that they seem to trade and track. And then I make a list where, you know, I put a little alert on my trading view. And if it hits the price, then I look at it again, see if anything has changed. And that's how I go about it. I, I, I would say that, you know, in terms of the sectors right now, I think that there's opportunities, obviously, if, if you're looking at, you know, some of the more beaten down groups, uh, like biotech is one of the groups that has been obviously destroyed. But I'm, I've, I've stopped playing with biotech because it just feels like you really need to know stuff there that is just really hard to understand sometimes. Um, and even when you think you understand it, there's probably someone who understands it better. Um, and I, I've been just burned there many times. Um, and so I stay away from that group. I mean, obviously, you know, healthcare is always a place that has opportunities. I'm always looking for things in that group that have sort of a, a niche when it comes to improving medical technology. I've been looking for some time for something that can be a play on improvements on imaging and diagnostics and things of that nature. Um, so, I mean, that's how I've been looking at it. So, Michael, I mean, you know, I think you and I, I'll speak for myself, you know, it's not shy of having strong opinions and often been wrong. Um, what do you make of the fact that when the market doesn't do what you think it's going to do or should do, that's always a dangerous phrase. Right. Um, oftentimes I want to stand back and say, okay, how could I be wrong? I wish I'd been more rigorous than I said earlier in the year. But um, what's the market saying? So if you try to argue against yourself, some people are trying to run with, you know, a Goldilocks scenario where, you know, we're getting a soft landing and earnings growth is starting to accelerate. I'm not saying I believe this. I'm just parroting what they're saying. Yeah. Earnings growth is starting to accelerating, you know, and, and inflation is rolling over. Wage costs are the, the rate of wage increases is declining. Um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and the market, the market didn't go down when rates, you know, went to the moon and, you know, things slow, there's no reason for rates to go up. And so maybe I hate to use the G word Goldilocks, but what if it's, what if, what if the bears are frustrated again? And, 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 and I, I'm not sure I even want to say again, because if you didn't know the top seven stocks, you didn't do very well in, in this year. But what if it turns out that, you know, especially given where we are in the election year, election cycle, um, <laughs> usually it's not a good idea to bid against the market, blah, blah, blah. So what's the likelihood that, you know what, the Bears will be disappointed again this year? Um, I mean, it's certainly possible. Um, and the one thing I've actually been thinking about is how there may be a window of only about six to nine months left 
And that means it's probably shorter because my what I've learned over time is that when I think something is going to be, when I expect something to be six to nine months or three to six months, it's usually half that time, right? And And so what I'm thinking is that by sometime in the spring, I hope the market gives me this opportunity at least, is that earnings for neck for not 2024 but for 2025 will have caught up to where valuations seem appropriate and in other words so that we didn't necessarily mark change valuation through price but we changed valuation through time and that's a big risk obviously because it could mean that you know stocks are a little bit higher than they are right now but i don't particularly because of the way that I invest, care if I miss five or 10%, which I know to some people sounds like, you know, how could you not care? But I personally don't because I'd rather miss five or 10% to the upside than catch 25% to the downside. And, you know, my whole concept is, is that if I, if I pick the right winners, the right stocks in that macro environment, that's like, Hey, you know what? We, we got through this whole rate hiking cycle. We survived it. I don't think rates are going higher anymore. Yeah, the economy has troughed. It looks like we're starting to turn. It looks like now, you know, 2025 numbers are trading at 13 or 14 times. I think 14 or, you know, 14 times, as long as the economy doesn't get worse, can trade at 18 times. Then I can make a case for the S&P 500 to go to 5,500. Then and we're and we're at you know 4600 then you know what it's time to get it's time to start you know finding some of these things that i think can really run during that period of time and i think that window and this was honestly was what i thought was going to happen in 2023 but that didn't happen right and that's what i was sort of setting up for in 20 at the end of 22 so it's quite possible that it didn't happen in 22, but by the time we get in 23, but by the time we get to that April, May period, because if you go back and you look at earnings estimates historically, they always start around 10% up and then they start coming down over time. They typically start coming down in that, you know, fourth end of fourth quarter, beginning of, you know, end of fourth quarter, first quarter timeframe. And so if they start coming down in, in 2025, maybe it gives you a trajectory out to where the S&P 500 can be in two or three years. And that's, and that's really, and I'm, I don't have that yet currently. I don't have a viewpoint where I can say I can justify the S&P 500 being much higher than where it is right now. It's not worth the risk to me. The risk reward isn't there. So I can't remember who, there's a good way of looking at this, who argued this way of analysis, where if you got three choices, it was John Roca, actually. Market up, market flat, market down. If you can just eliminate one of them, and I don't put words in your mouth, but I, I think if I heard you correctly, you're saying at least for the next year, or next few months, you're eliminating up. That means you're flat to down. Whether it goes down, who the heck knows? Does that just lead to the logic thing you just articulated, which is you know it just does not justify the risk? I mean, again, I don't put words in your mouth, but you think the upside is like pretty limited, if not existent at this point. I mean, I think it's I think it's limited because we've gotten a lot more multiple expansion than I expected. We're already at 19 times 240. 
I mean, we could go to 20 and that'd be 4,800. I mean, very rarely have I seen the S&P trade at, you know, 21 or 22 and, and it not be um, some sort of manic bubble. I mean, and that's always a possibility, but that's, you know, again, like, uh, the way I'm positioned is from a, a defensive point of view. And, and that could, it could very well be the case that next year I don't have a good year because I own the top, you know, I own, you know, five of the top seven names or four of the top seven names. And, you know, all of a sudden they don't perform at all. Right. And let's say small caps are what does well next year. Um, so, so, Michael, my, my, yeah. Michael, those, is that your research department speaking up in the background? That's my wife. <laughs> <laughs> she likes to scare my kids when they come home from school. Well, he's upset with your stock picks, baby. All right. I'll yeah. tell you, Mike, give it a rest for a second. Let's bring some other folks up to always to add to the excitement. Okay, so we're going to do uh, Danny and then Dave Nikoski. Danny, good to see you, my friend. What's up? You too, George. Uh, always nice to see you as well. I'll, I'll let David go, if you don't mind. I get hit with the big questions, huh? Hey, Michael, how you doing, buddy? I haven't chatted with you in a while. Um, so, um, you know, it, it sounds, and, and I agree with your value versus growth. I just posted a chart on my profile as well on the S&P. So I appreciate that because that one I haven't been staring at daily. Um what what if we see um, you know in in terms of Europe? I mean, it's half the valuation of the U.S. or just slightly over half. You know, I've been prominently bullish on the European countries, watching natural gas obliviate itself and oil come down. You know, I, I haven't found a period in time where the emerging markets and even domestic uh, industrialized markets take off with a decline in oil and natural gas. Thoughts about that? Um, well, I mean, the interesting thing, I was looking at the DAX today, for example, and you're right, it trades, I think, at 11 or 12 times earnings. And um, the earnings estimates actually are coming down, <laughs> which is even more bizarre. Um, and I mean, you're right. I mean, oil is a global growth indicator, right? And, and so when oil prices are going down, it's an indication of weak demand. And uh, that could be a function of two things. It could be a function of a strong dollar. In this case, the dollar has been kind of stagnant and oil has been coming down. And obviously, a strong dollar isn't good for emerging markets. Um, so I Again, like it seems to me like this is much more about liquidity than it is about fundamentals. And I think as long as I, that that's I mean, that's the only conclusion I really I really can take away from all of this. Yeah. So, you know, I, I posted a couple charts today, Michael, and you probably I know you follow me, so. Um, I put, posted a couple of charts on Shenzhen and Shanghai, which both closed at their high last night. And yet Hang Seng was straight down. Um, and the, you know, KWAB, the, the popular ETF, closed like at their lows. Like internally, I'm seeing a, a divergence in terms of what uh, locals can buy versus what, you know, most of us can buy. Yeah, oh, yeah. it was just an unusual 
circumstance and wanted to run that by you if you have a time to answer that. So you're talking about the CSI 300 and the Shanghai composite? Yeah, the SSE yeah. composite. Yeah, Both so I, I follow those too. Yeah. I mean, I watch them every night. I used to trade international markets. Well, there you go. A long I'm time ago. Right and so I, I use... Um, Unfortunately, I still watch them as if I were trading them on a daily basis, although I don't. But I mean, Hong Kong is obviously, you know, uh, is a market that I every night it's like it opens and I just wait for it to turn lower. Um, And 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 the CSI 300 is let's face facts is trading at levels. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it traded up last night a little, but it hasn't been this low since, you know, February of 2019. So, uh, I, yeah, uh, you're yeah, you're arguing with the choir. Yeah, I, I, mean, I agree. So, I don't like the chart pattern, but right. And then I'm going, you know, people on the ground there know better what's going on than you and I do. Of course, sitting half halfway around the world, you know. Yeah, and so, I mean, I I learned that I learned that lesson, you know, many many years ago. Um, you know, trading some of these markets because. You know, you you wouldn't understand, you know, why you're, you know, selling it so easily or why you were buying it so easily. And then all of a sudden, you know, sure enough, a couple of days later, you'd find out. Um, but, you know, I, I joke, you know, around and I say, well, you know, Tencent must not be an AI. <laughs> you know, Alibaba must not be doing AI. You know, Baidu must not be doing AI because these charts are going in the opposite direction of all the stocks here. And I know that Tencent is, you know, Tencent used to have a valuation of equal to that of Amazon, one and a half trillion or so. And now it's, you know, been cut in half. Um, and I, I think some of it is because of obviously the, you know, China having a stronger grip on that industry and a stronger grip on that, on that market. Um, but I watch South Korea a lot and and South Korea has, you know, rebounded off of the lows, and um, but again, it, it hasn't gotten it hasn't gotten back to its near its July highs. And the Kozak, which is their smaller caps, uh, you know, again, not anywhere close. And they have a short selling ban in place. Um, and then I watch Taiwan a lot, and Taiwan's actually rebounded quite a bit, mostly because of Taiwan Semi. I watch it, um, but then you look at so you look at Asia. On the whole, and it it looks pretty weak. Even Australia looks fairly weak. Um, and and then I look at Europe, and I'm like, I don't know what's going on there. I mean, the DAX is just going up in a vertical manner. And what's interesting though is that if you take the DAX and you convert the DAX index into dollars, it looks identical to the S and P 500. So what I kind of realized is that there's some sort of liquidity obviously component to this, but there's also some sort of currency play going on. And um, when you take the the NASDAQ composite and you turn it into yen, it looks like the Nikkei. <laughs> so, so there's something, there's some sort of trade I feel like there's going on in the world uh, around currencies and, um, and these indexes. And I, I don't, I'm not, Unfortunately, I, I don't know everything, and I haven't quite figured this one out yet. No, I agree with you. I, I have gone into a number of spaces and said something took it took effect on 1031 that none of us know. There was a deliberate, you know, rally that took place in every market, 
you know, that, that with the exception, you know, that's, that's faded that is China. And, you know, that would be the exception to that comment, but very unusual, you know, something broke on 1031 and we, we, you know, published the uh, percentage of names above the 50 day on the S&P and the IWM and internally they were turned bullish on that, you know, within a week before that. Right. So, you know, it was, it was, but I like to see the 200 day, not the 50 day. Right. Major reversal. So, you know, something that was very unusual, um, but very difficult to ponder enough weight on the 50 day versus the 200 day. So quite interesting. But let me ask the question both for David and for Michael, uh, whoever wants to take this one. But let's put narratives aside uh, for a second. Uh, I know I specialize in them, but if we just look at the price action, look, and, and David, maybe this is in the weeds, maybe it's more for you, but looking at the breadth, looking at the advanced decline line, I mean, it's all going in the positive direction. So what do you make of that? I mean, the, 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 the expanding breadth of, of, of the underlying market, David. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing is, is, you know, I was in a space with Cantro probably this, like the 10th of October. And I said, you know, what's unusual is the SML was outperforming the IWM and had a big breakout long before that bottom. Um, the S&P 600 contrives of, you know, profitable companies in, in, in most of them being obviously residing in the Russell 2000. Um, it, on 1031, you had a reversal of that. And the crap company started to outperform and now it's coming back to quality you know in the since the beginning of december where you have the sml actually outperforming the iwm so there there is some disenchantment internally um i i marked up you know and threw out on my profile a number of times the the small cap bank index the kre um, which I had, you know, discussed on your space back in February as being, you know, potential for a major breakdown. You know, that has been one of the biggest standouts in this market has been the small cap banks. Um, you know, my concern here is, and I've said it a number of times, I think this cycle of the business cycle is going to extend farther right than two years from the peak. So if your average business cycle is four years, I think this, the two years out from the top is going to extend farther out and we're coming up into some resistance. But what's unusual, if you looked at the KRE, um, you know, versus the S&P 500, you had the same exact pattern that we have now. So I'm kind of in a hold pattern on saying, you know, KRE is going to advance more from here. You know, the, the big question, and, and I think what the market has wrong, I've been higher for longer. Um, and if the economy is doing fine, I don't see any reason why the Fed's going to cut. And I, I, I think we're going to sit at this 5%, 550 level for longer than most people have patience for. And front running the Fed, obviously last year was... You can argue is the right thing to do because we're, you know, approaching new highs. But, you know, from that July period to the October 31st period, you know, we were in a downtrend. And um, so I, I think, you know, the market has three directions and we shouldn't, you know, jump to conclude that, you know, we have to go up or down. 
different. It can be sideways and churning. Well, David, um, you know what? Uh, just thinking about it, you said something changed on 1031. It didn't change on 1031. It changed on November 1st. November 1st was, remember, there's a, there was a huge short position in bonds. And people were betting on the Treasury refunding announcement being higher, bigger, and further out in duration. And what did they do? They, they, they came out with a smaller number and they pushed and they didn't go further out in duration. And that sent yields down, which caused a massive uh, covering in rate uh, in, in treasuries, pushing price up and the yields down. That's what changed. And then later that afternoon, you had Powell. But by that point, it didn't matter what he said, because the systematic train had already left the station. And that's what was yeah. the driver of that, I believe. If I'm 24 hours off, I'll take it, Michael. But <laughs> yes, I, you know, I, I called on, I think it was November 20th. I said the amount of volume in the TLT was the record amount. And I said, yeah. this this could be a capitulation. We'll find out in the next few days. And that was the pivot point in terms of, of yield highs. Um, I think that's the high for the cycle. But again, I, I you know, when I'm looking at equities and I, I'm, you know, this space is for you. So I, I don't want to take up your time by me just talking, you know, uh, with a jumbled mess. But, you know, there, there's a lot that I'm seeing outside the U.S. that actually looks attractive. And I'd love for you to touch upon that. I think that would be a great, great um, insight if you're tracking the foreign markets. We talked about Asia. Um, yes. But go ahead. So oh, go ahead, George. Yeah, okay. I was just going to say because you guys were talking a minute or two ago about the banks, and uh, we have uh, Chris Donaldson in the room who I think has a question about a sector related to the banks, um, namely real estate. So, Chris, why don't you have had you had a question about real estate? I think for uh, Michael, Chris, are you there? The floor is yours. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, George. Good to see you, uh, David and Danny, and nice to, uh, to I guess, meet you, Michael. Um, you know, uh, I want to piggyback on what David just said, because it was kind of a perfect way to lead into the cycle does seem to be taking longer <laughs> these days uh, than what we're used to. And so I was curious how much you're factoring in um, what may still be to come with the residential housing market specifically, um, one of the things that I've sort of been keeping an eye on, as well as others, is the push and pull between what the Fed is trying to accomplish with their policy and then the, uh, the pull, I guess, of fiscal, uh, specifically the, the administration and their commitment to do anything they can to distort uh, residential housing markets, given the size, the impact to the GDP um, and where it is now. Um, there's a positive spin that could be put on it as if it can't get any worse. There's also uh, a lot of indicators that could say it can get a lot worse, uh, specifically in terms of the uh, values. Are y'all factoring that in at all? Um, I mean, I, the, the, I, I don't, I'm not, certainly not a real estate expert, but I, I, I can tell you that I watched the real estate market in my area, in the New York tri-state area. Um, quite a bit just to kind of keep an eye on, you know, what houses they're selling for and, you know, the number of listings. And, and, it, and, and the shocking thing is to me is that it seems like prices are still going up 
um, despite rates being where they are. So my first thought is like, how are people buying these things? <laughs> you know, and my second thought is, is like, obviously everyone that has a 3% or 3.5% rate or lower is in no rush to sell, which means that the Fed has another problem because if you're not buying a house and you have to live somewhere, it means you need to rent. And um, I don't, I don't really know how they, how they square that circle, so to speak, in terms of, you know, getting housing to cool off and prices to come down, you know, because it seems like prices are still going up to me. And I, I think the last time I looked at S and P K Schiller numbers, they had turned higher already. Yeah, Michael, I. Uh... We're going to meet Danny in a second because he knows a thing or two about construction. But um, I can just tell you from personal experience, um, you know, I live in Westchester and my partner is involved in the uh, uh, real estate business intimately. And it's the same thing. I mean, prices are not going down. There's just a lack of supply. Um, so what you were talking before about too much money in the system supporting stocks, I mean, doesn't the parallel argument kind of hold? You look at real estate, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, people... People are pretty flush, so I, I, I don't know. I, I, I second the motion, but let's just let's just bring D Danny. You had your hand up. I suspect you have an opinion on this. And uh, Danny, why don't, why don't you weigh in? Yeah. So the whenever real estate is talked about, I get triggered, and I'm not a uh, by not even close. I'm like an ant compared to the gentleman on stage here when it comes to the markets. But yeah, I do own a very small construction company. And um, I'm about an hour north of Manhattan, Georgia. I didn't know you were in Westchester. That's awesome. We probably know some of the same people. My wife is from yeah, Southport. And I, I, I happen to go on the Dutchess County Rail Trail. I, I bike through your your your. your <laughs> I, I know where you live, Danny. Go and keep going. <laughs> Good. All right. I'll be nice then. <laughs> um, but, yeah, one thing that uh, is, I think is a huge factor in is the areas in which we discuss real estate um because i i think no matter where you go in the country there's been this mass exodus from urban areas into you know an hour radius outside of major cities and one thing that i'm noticing is compared to last year and 2021 more so 2021 and the beginning of last year is that the folks that are spending money now on remodeling are like upper lower upper class and and upper class and upper middle class so 2021 and 2022 for my business at least there was uh, it was mostly uh, mid to low, what you might call middle class, if it still exists. And they were spending money like crazy. Like people that owned a $300,000 house were getting their roof done, a patio and a deck all at the same time. Um, now I'm putting bids in for guys that are like retired IBMers or getting ready to retire and like, uh, tomorrow I'm going to Warren, Connecticut to put a bid in for a guy that manages a hundred million dollar fund, um, is a part owner and manager of it. So, um, 
Yeah, that's that's really all I wanted to say. And then lastly would be like that it, the the home prices in this hour or so radius outside of the cities, like Michael said, yeah, I, I mean, they're certainly not coming down. My real estate broker, um, I sort of keep my finger on the pulse by having conversations with him. He has 100 plus agents in New York. And uh, he tells me that even though real estate uh, sales are down 30% this year or so that they're still getting 10 to 20 to 30% over asking, um, at least in this area. So yeah, the people that are spending now are retired, retired or close to retired and then younger, but have lots of money. So that thanks for letting me share. Yeah. Dang, before we go back to Chris, I'll just second the motion. I mean, I think I mentioned this in a prior space, but uh, my partner's in the real estate business. So I get a mark to market kind of like every night at the dinner table. And the statistics she gave me a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned, I'll just repeat it. Um, in the market she's in, it's like the wealthiest zip code in the state of New York. There's only 26 homes on the market compared to 130 at this time last year. Um, and anything that's quasi reasonable in terms of price, you get into like multiple bidding wars. So, yeah, you, yeah. You, you, so forget about, you know, what we think. If you just say, well, what's going on here? You'd be like, doesn't look weak to me. So, but again, we shouldn't get caught up too much in anecdotes, but, you know, just keep checking and we'll keep doing these spaces. Chris, let's go back to you. You want to wait, come back in on real estate and then we're going to go to Michael. Chris, real, quick, can... uh, real quick, Chris, if you don't mind, George, while I have you like actually in person, I am licensed in Westchester, so I'd love to, uh, if you could make the connection with your real estate person there. Sometime. There you go. All right. All right. Thanks. I got it. Danny, we should talk offline. Chris, did, yeah. you want to, did you want to weigh back in, Chris? Yeah, sure. No, uh, George, you, you, obviously, uh, you hit the nail on the head. And, and I was, since we're talking markets, uh, just to relate it, the real estate market is acting a lot like a low float, uh, small cap stock. There's just not enough transactions. And so um, prices are maintaining or even going up because there's just nothing to buy. And, and I'm looking at fresh uh, data across the country, you know, and every it, real estate's very local. Um, and it's in my interest that the folks that I work with would be like uh, uh, Danny's friend with the hundred agents and all of that. So I suppose uh, it just relating to markets is that wealth effect um, and this sort of false propping up of the market with fiscal that the White House is doing. And uh, if that unravels as, let's say, inventories increase, uh, transactions normalize, but prices uh, sort of come back down, how that might, you know, uh, feed in, especially to the banks and to the markets. But uh, you, you, uh, thank you guys. I appreciate yeah. it. This is, uh, uh, you, good you know, listen, listening to all you guys, I think we have to do another space with Ivy Zellman. We haven't had her in here for a long time. And, uh, I'll see if we can't get her back in here. Um, so that'd be great. Dave, did you have, David Nicasa, you have a quick comment before we go to Michael? Yeah, you know, existing home sales are, I mean, we're well over a decade lows, you know. Um, I, I'm just going to say, you know, it takes a while when you jump rates up to, to normalize it, you know, where people feel confident in their jobs to, you know, marry a 30-year mortgage. You know, it's it's important to realize that, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's not the beginning of the world. But 
you know, you're going to have a lot of realtors lose their job, you know, and, you know, one area I'm, I'm watching is the realty related companies, you know, from a technical aspect of when you start to, you know, you don't start a bull market unless something troughs and we're, we're examining, you know, um, existing home sales. And at some point there's a turn and it's important to, you know, try to capture that turn. You've seen, you know, the, the builders do extremely well, you know, they, they look like they topped out, you know, in August and then reverse course, even though their sales are down dramatically, you know, the market still loves them. Um, so that, that's one area I'm looking at is the reality related names um, to look for a potential in, in turning with rates having come down slightly from their peak. And, you know, as, as a watcher of the markets like Michael, uh, you know, that's what I want to capture. Um, and again, I don't want to get the very bottom. I'm not going to, but looking for a trend change. So thanks. Appreciate that. that. All right, let's go to Michael, and then we're going to go to uh, Surya. Michael, the floor is yours. Michael Norensberg, are you there? Please unmute yourself. George, thanks. For, uh, thanks. I always love these spaces, and thanks so much for letting a permabear speak his piece. But um, I just have a question for basically you, David, and Michael. Um, you know, in the dot-com bubble, in the bust of the dot-com bubble, there were three rallies of approximately 20% bounces. Um, and personally, I think we're in the middle of that. I don't know it's 15, 14%, but how do you chart that? How do you play that? How do you know? That's my question to the experts. Uh, Dave Nikoski, you follow the charts more closely than myself or Michael. I'm happy to take a shot at it, but you want to go you know, back, Dave? You know, the, the, the problem with answering that question is, is like if you answer bullishly and you get burned, you know, you, you get chastised. You know, I'm going to say that there, there's a lot more working in this market than any time, you know, during the six months prior to 1031. Um, you know, I'm going to say... The markets can get expensive because you know what? Every time someone gets the FOMO, they chase it. But, you know, you can grow into it. Um, I, I, you know, you're right in your assessment of 2000. The big difference here is a lot of technology companies um, are much more profitable than they were. So, you know, it's hard to write that off. Are they ahead of themselves? Yes. I, in my opinion, I think they are. Um especially if this business cycle is going to take longer than two years on the downside from that peak. Um, but, you know, the problem is if you, you know, if you throw $5 trillion into the market, I'll tell you which way it goes. And that's where we're at. The, the, this market doesn't care about valuation. They want to care about quality. And that's one thing, you know, where, where I addressed earlier in this conversation is if you look at something like the Germany DAX index, is it six-month relative strength highs to the S&P at half the valuation? Natural gas prices are plummeting. Oil's plummeting. You know, I, I'm not going to go against that. I, I just look for other areas outside of what everyone else wants. 
You know, the big great, problem. Great call on Brazil, by the way. Amazing. Thank you. You know, the the big problem in this market is I don't, I'm not going to add value if I tell a client to buy the big seven or not buy the big seven because they have to own it. They have to. I mean, it, it's purely waiting, right? If you get yeah. that wrong, you know, it, it is the passive flows. Well, Dave, Dave, it's interesting you say that because I was speaking to a, uh, a pretty well-known uh, strategist. doesn't work for bulge bracket firm, used to, and very well-regarded. And he said to me, from a fundamental perspective, he said something parallel exactly what you said as far as the uh, you know the FANG stocks and MAG7. He's like, you know, I just tell people to index them because you can't, they're kind of like in their, it's like an asset class almost of its own. Um, there's such a big part of the index. If you don't own them, you're dead. Um, it's po- it, it, it's difficult and impossible from a fundamental standpoint to come up with a differentiated observation. I mean, what are you going to learn talking to Apple or Facebook that the 69 other analysts that follow those companies don't already know? So from a strategist standpoint, he's like, you know what? Just index it and try to generate your alpha. You're talking about performance, of course. Just try to generate your alpha by making some other bets, which kind of sounds... From a fundamental perspective, paralleling precisely what you're saying. So, yeah, the, the biggest added value that I think I achieve doing what I do is finding the names outside that no one's looking at. You know, I, I came up, you know, in August and was talking about the engineering construction companies, and Limba LMB was one of my picks. You know, it's far excelled Nvidia's performance. No one in this room probably knows who they are. You know, and it's a real company, uh, at least according to the chart, right? <laughs> um, you know, but, you know, here's the problem. You know, charts pick up every great fundamental company, but they also have, you know, not every great company has fundamentals that prints a great chart, you know, and, and that's the, the world that I have to live in. Um, so, you know, it, it goes without saying, you know, marrying two strategies technical and fundamental helps you find the truth and um but but adding value with a company that is going to go generate you know two to three alpha above the magnificent seven in my opinion if you're a portfolio manager you get to you know you get to gravitate to something that everyone else is not owning and generates that type of alpha and it may be a small position but boy does that really help when you know at the end of at end of the year end of the quarter where you get to print some great alpha yep. so you know that's and, and i agree with that philosophy what you said george i think every strategist i've heard talk in these spaces say exactly the same thing you like i'm not going to add value on those top seven names you have to own them I'm going to find that other 75% outside of that, that adds the alpha that's going to get you better performance. Right. So before we go on, uh, there was one quite, cause someone mentioned Brazil a minute ago. I can't remember which of the speakers mentioned Brazil, but one of the, uh, w- one of our friends in the room asked me, Michael Kramer, Mike, this is for you, Michael Kramer, wanted me to ask you, what your thoughts are uh, on Brazil. I think Dave, you were someone's Michael Lawrence, but was just complimenting you, Dave McCoskey in the Brazil call. So Michael Kramer, um, you have any view on Brazil and then um, 
and then I'll, I'll ask Dave Nicasio weigh in as well. But, but Michael, do you have you have a view on Brazil? No, I don't. I don't follow Brazil. Those okay. I never really was into All it. Right. Yeah, all right. So so the Dave Nicasio technically, I mean, Brazil's done well. You think it's got legs, or what's your take, Dave? I, I think if China recovers, and you know what, anyone in this room that doesn't want China to recover. Think of the counterparties to China, second largest country. You know, I remember back during the pigs, you know, everyone was concerned about Greece. Like I looked around my house and I'm like, what do I own from Greece? Whatever. I own a bottle of Uzo. That's the only thing I've in <laughs> olives. Like if you want to look around your house and see what you own from China, I guarantee you every single product that you have in your house is from China. Yep. So if you if you think that China should absolve itself and go to zero, we're going to have some big problems because they they produce and, you know, most of the your basic materials are done in China, whether right. it's steel, whether it's, you know, nickel, whether it doesn't matter, go across the food chain. So, you know, and that's one of the reasons I pointed out earlier about what the Shanghai and the Shenzhen is doing they closed at their daily high yesterday where the FXI and C-Web closed right, right near their lows. Right. So it, 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 to me, it's um, going back to Brazil. You know, I, I, I see Brazil is tethered to China, but they also export a lot to the U.S. It's outside of the Israeli conflict completely. You know, it, it's, it's, it's an area of growth that I think it can sustain itself. Do I like the leader? No. Do I think that the Congress or parliament there is going to curb what the enthusiasm that Lula has? I do. Right. All right, let's move on. So I want to go to Sarir. Uh, she has a question, um, I believe, for uh, Michael um, on your um, view about uh, the large cap names and also on gold Sarir, Are you there? The floor is yours. Yes. Uh Yes, thank you very much to all panelists. And I have a question for Michael. One, uh, it's about something that was said, that was said before. If stock valuation will naturally grow into, uh, if stocks will grow into valuations thanks to earnings being higher, what will happen to inflation? And second question is, do you have an opinion about gold? Thank you. Um, so, I mean, inflation obviously is, is the big, is the big driver. And, and that's why, like I say that I, I think there's a window of four to six months, call it, where we're going to find out what the narrative is going to be, because like, if you begin to see earnings estimates, I think come down for 2024, which I, I think they will, um, because again, I with inflation coming down, uh, sales growth usually goes with inflation, right? So when, when as inflation comes down, I would expect sales growth to also come down. Right now, it's estimated to grow about five percent, and right now analysts are basically projecting, you know, margins to increase by quite a bit, I think to about 12% next year, which I think is uh, a little bit too much. And so the market basically can correct two ways, either by going lower or by going through time. And if we come to a point, you know, in the spring where 
2024 earnings estimates are holding up and they're not coming down. And we can point to 2025 and say, hey, you know, 2024 estimates have actually kind of held in here. They're not coming down. You know, 2025 is is looking like, you know, it can grow by maybe not 10 percent, but but like even five or six percent. And and you can put on, you know, from 240, you get to 250 in earnings and, uh, you know, 20 times earnings. You're talking about a valuation of 5000. Now, depending upon where the S&P 500 is at that point, it may or may not be a deal. But I think like as we go through the calendar year next year, that's really going to be the time in this between between, I would say, January and April well, we're going to start finding out whether or not earnings for next year are going to grow and what can we point to at 2025? Because I always like to look at where earnings are going to be two years from now. And I don't, because if I can look two years out and I know that over time, the, the, the PE ratio moves up, right? Usually the closer you get to earn the earnings date, the, the PE ratio kind of rises over that point over that time. And if the PE ratio on, you know, for 2025 is like 14 and I think you can grow to a 17 or 18, then maybe that's where that, that's where your, that's where your window of opportunity is. But again, a lot of that's going to depend on where inflation is and how much margin compression companies face. Right. And and, and, and Michael, Michael, just quickly, because I want to get to, I want to get Tom Thornton in next, but uh, so your second question was, you have, you have a particularly strong view on gold, Michael? Oh, gold. Um, so I've been trying to, to find a natural hedge because I'm not exactly sure that this 60-40 model is going to work indefinitely anymore, meaning like it may not be the case that bonds are really a natural hedge to stocks anymore, given what we've been through and given the amount of spending that's taking place in the government. Um, and so gold has been something I've been I've normally have not been a fan of gold for many years, maybe over a decade. But for the first time in a decade, I'm actually thinking about gold as something that could be a hedge in these times. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's something I'm looking at and thinking about. Thanks. Appreciate it. Tom Thorne is in the house. My good friend, Mr. Thorne. Haven't seen you for a while. How have you been? Hey, George. I'm good. Can you hear me okay? We're good. You're good. Floor is yours. Go for it, man. What's on your mind? Uh, well, just first off, uh, nice to hear from you again. And uh, I'm driving, so uh, if I lose you, I'll, I'll, I'll get back on once I get to my house. Uh, well, I, I'll just say that, you know, this has been, for me, one of the more challenging years. I, I didn't get behind the Magnificent Seven. I unfortunately... Um, use my brain and I looked at valuations and I just didn't, you know, jump on board. Uh, it hasn't been that bad of a year. It's under, I've underperformed um, a lot. Last year was a different year. Uh, did okay then. But the thing that's happening right now, um, first of all, I, I, I'm probably getting to one of the higher levels of bearishness I, I've been at in quite some time. And there's a few reasons why. Um, one, um, in October, I was hoping for a capitulatory, a capitulatory move. We never got it. Um, a lot of things were overdone. Positioning was offsides. And we saw a lot of liquidity flood into the market. 
um, thanks to Janet and her TGA and uh, the reverse repo drain. So that's been something that's, you know, really moved uh, positioning. The CTAs are fully long now. And that that is something, uh, you know, it was pretty easy to see, but uh, I didn't get the capitulation that I wanted. Uh, market sentiment back then in October, late October was 10% bulls on the daily sentiment index. On the NASDAQ uh, tonight, we just got the reading, it's 82%. 82% bulls. Um, that's getting into the extreme zone above 80%. Um, I think that the Fed has a tougher task moving inflation from 3% to 2%. And I think things will stay sticky. And let's re- just remember that uh, inflation means that things are still going higher in price, not necessarily we have a deflationary time where things are going down in price. And that's a big change because you still have a lot of items that people use every single day and buy that are at prices much higher than they were at pre-COVID. So it's going to drain on the consumer. Uh, I, I kind of got into a little thing with uh, another friend about uh, the soft landing narrative. And I'm completely against the soft landing narrative. And I think that people that think that we're going to have a soft landing are going to find out that it's always a soft landing before it's a hard landing. And I can't, you know, I, the, the debate I had with this person was that it's 1994, his, his view, 1994, 1995. And there were so many differences back then. Uh, notably, there was $4 trillion in national debt. And today there's $34 billion, or trillion in national debt. Our deficit's skyrocketing. We have rates that are still high. I, I think that you're going to still have higher rates on the long end, especially uh, with all the issuance that has to happen in 2024. Um, you know, you've had this um, interesting thing that happened uh, in the end of 2021. I was bear- I started to get very bearish on tech. And one of the reasons uh, I looked at was that well, sentiment was very extended like it is now. And you had DeMarc uh, weekly sell signals on the NASDAQ 100 and a lot of the individual mega cap tech names. And you had also a lot of narrow attribution like you have this year, but this year is even more extreme. At the end of last year, um, I think, George, you'll remember, I was covering a lot of my shorts in late December because we had to mark buy countdown 13s on the weekly time frame. So we went opposite from one year to the other. And I didn't anticipate uh, the move that we were going to have, especially in this, these seven stocks, um, astounding uh, to me. And I'm you know guilty as charged by not jumping on board and being like everybody else. But now we have sell signals again happening on the weekly NASDAQ 100. And you have market sentiment at highs again. And if anyone just mentions that they're somewhat bearish on things, I think they, they also say, well, fundamentals don't matter. Well, of course, fundamentals don't matter because there's a lot of the stocks, the magnificent seven stocks that aren't necessarily growing that, that well. Uh, you have NVIDIA, which has done the majority of gains within the NASDAQ or the magnificent seven stocks with you know just astounding gains uh, but you haven't seen Apple grow, but the stock's hitting a new high. 
You have weekly exhaustion signals. You're going to have a daily exhaustion signal probably this week. And uh, Tesla, as we've talked about, uh, is definitely not growing, and their earnings are continuing to trend lower. And the faithful of Tesla, they are under the assumption that they're growing at the same rate of as NVIDIA, and they haven't grown earnings in maybe four quarters now. And their deliveries, uh, they're doing everything they can by cutting pricing uh, daily. And it just, you can go on their website, you can see it all the time uh, across the world that they keep cutting prices and margins are going to go lower. And it's not necessarily just them. I mean, I think they started the price war, but the faithful thinks that, um, you know, they're going to win it and uh, maybe they will. But still, the valuation of Tesla, the momentum that's been in Tesla, I think there's going to be a reckoning in 2024. And I, I'm again, I'm, I'm super bearish. I think that uh, right now there's there's just a belief that uh, this soft landing is going to happen. And, you know, the Fed can't really think that they're going to get a soft landing when you have unemployment uh, at these levels at 3.7%. Uh, remember in 94 you had unemployment dropping from six percent and it was going lower at that point uh, it's going to start trending higher and i i think that people are under the false thought that oh everything's going to be fine but the same thing happened last year that everybody thought things were going to be so awful and we know how that turned out as well uh, but still i i'm just super bearish right now uh, maybe some people don't want to hear it and you know don't listen to me. Don't follow me. I don't really care. But that's where I'm at. That's a, thanks, Tony, for that succinct um, summary. Just quickly, maybe you can address the question that the prior speak, questioner asked. Um, gold, because I know it's something you follow. What's your take on uh, the barbaric, uh, the, the, the yellow metal now? Well, I, you know what? I'm sort of agnostic on gold. And, you know, typically it's it's a very similar type thing. Um, that we've seen in the markets when it's going up, people want to pile in. And I, this last spike that we had, everybody, I mean, I don't know what caused it last Sunday, but it moved up and I just, I, I was tweeting about it and saying it's probably going to fade. And it did. Uh, I think people are chasing things now. I think this is a market of nomads that they'll go and they'll chase the, the thing that's working and they've been chasing the Magnificent Seven. And I don't really understand the hedge in gold because it's sort of like Bitcoin. And forgive me, I, I'm not a Bitcoin fan or you know detractor. I, I look, I watch the price action. But there's, you know, this was supposed to be the narrative for an inflation hedge, gold that is, and so was Bitcoin. And it really didn't necessarily. It, it, it changes the narrative every once in a while. Oh, it's the devaluing of the U.S. dollar. That's why you want to be in it. Or it's an inflation hedge. I, I think it's just, you know, if, it's, if, if people start to embrace it in some big way, people will buy it. And that's basically it. Um, I just don't see really any great hedge in the market to say that this is the uh, in the hedge for inflation or deflation or whatever. So it's, it's just an asset people chase it. And that's, that's generally how I, I see it. And 
The one thing that I will say is the daily sentiment index um, at, at those highs, uh, that and silver, uh, silver had um, exhaustion countdown 13s. Actually, the gold and silver did have weekly um, sell countdown 13s um, on that spike, which um, that was sort of pending for quite a while. So I don't really put too much effort into that, but silver had an exhaustion signal on the daily. Sentiment was extremely high and it's just more or less a sentiment read on my end. And, uh, time, I mean, you've proven time and time again, or, or it's eerie your, your sentiment, gauging sentiment's been so helpful in your process. A quickie as long as, and then I want to get to someone else, but as long as we're talking about uh, just rounding the corner, um, oil, uh, energy, because you've been pretty good at this. Um, are you warming up to energy or where's your head on energy these days, Tommy? The crude, crude and the stocks. Or, or, is is crude and, and the stocks they telling you something about what's going on in the world economy and therefore justifying you know perhaps your more negative view on the rest of the market time be there i think we lost you oh no i'm here i'm here Sorry. Oh, there you go. There you go. Um, there you go. i have to hit the button <laughs> yeah no worries. Yes, yes. Um, so the question so, was, the question was energy yeah yeah so this is kind of where i'm at right now um i actually last june um i i, I think some people know that i was uh, getting very warmed up on energy and crude and the equity markets for energy. And I, I, I basically rode that long uh, up about 20%. And then I got out and I, I'm actually actively looking for some place to re-enter. And I think that we're getting closer with the DeMarc signals with crude. Crude bullish, bullish sentiment hit 16% the other day. So it's getting down at these low levels and sentiment is, you know, uh, a trigger. It's more of a, uh, close there. And, and then seasonality gets pretty good in January through May for energy. And, and I, I do think that, um, you know, you also have a lot of geopolitical dynamics in the Mideast. Um, I mean, a lot of people, you know, they, they went out and bought crude on the, um, the, the current war in the Middle East, and that didn't work. Um, so I think that um, it, it's probably just going to get very boring, and then we're going to want to want to buy it. And I'll, I'll I'll tweet out when I buy it. I I, I will. Uh, the one thing also, it, I, I I locked my Twitter account just because there were so many you know spam and garbage on it that uh, uh, it, it just didn't really work for me, and I, I'm you know, sort of, you know, turned off on Twitter a bit just because of all that and uh, the imposters and, you know, Rachel, that's going to double your money, you know, and thank God I found her that those, those spam bots, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, it just, it just got to a point where it, it was really a turnoff. So I've, I've kind of been a bit low pro um, out there working on some new things for uh, my fund and for my website so that's that's basically it uh but i am warming up to energy i think that's there's going to be a buy a buying opportunity and i'm not necessarily super bearish on everything i'm looking at a lot of different places that i think there's going to be consolidation happening i think next year there could be a big wave of m a we're starting to see it um you know macy's uh, today uh, you had occidental um and you know some others out there I think there's a survivability type uh, trade when it comes to M&A, 
if there's a recession that's happening, you're going to get one plus one equals one, and they'll be able to uh, cut costs and survive a bit of a recessionary time. So I think that's coming. I'm long, you know, my largest long is U.S. Steel. So I'm I'm hoping for my P&L sake that they will be able to close a deal this uh, this month. Thanks, Tommy. Good to hear from you again. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a ring. We got some other things to talk about. All right, let's move along here. Um, I want to get to controls. Been waiting patiently, and then we're going to go to the Marsh letter, and then this guy. Boy, oh boy, did he trigger me. I got it. He's got the best Twitter profile I've seen in memory. Ignoramus, Ignoramus Capital Management with a picture of Paul Krugman. So I can't wait to hear this guy. All right. So Control, you're out first in the Marsh letter. Control, the floor is yours. Control, please unmute yourself. Okay. So and Michael Norrisberg, he was asking about uh, where do you know if we are, um, so to speak, in the up leg or down leg of the current bubble that we are in. So uh, the truth is that you don't. So if you hear people about talking about technical analysis or you know other type of tools that they have at their disposal, it's just not true. So if you didn't figure it out yet, maybe you should, so to speak, find something else to do. The system is non-deterministic so that means that if you do not have capability to control it effectively you won't be able to know if you want to know what the system will do dm me that's it thanks guys okay well i guess control will have to dm you because we we would all like to know more um thank you for that all right let's move along we're to go to the marsh letter oh christ Hey, Krugman, ignoramus capital management, you got to come. Oh, you're still there. Okay, fine. Don't you leave. All right, March letter, you're up. Floor is yours. Hey, Davos here. I got a quick question. Where do you guys come up with 3.2% inflation? And are you aware that since the 1970s, the Bureau of Labor Statistics implemented hedonics, substitution, and geometric weighting, and that CPI is actually 13%? and not coming down if we calculate it the same way we do in the 70s. So you have Jay shut the fucking door pal with rates at 5.3% thinking he's going to fight inflation of 13%. Like, do you guys, are you in touch with that reality? Um, Just curious. Yeah, Marsh, that's a good point. It's something we've talked about in this room before. Um, And it also then leads to the logical conclusion. And so, I'm well well familiar with those with those arguments as are a lot of folks in the room, and so then begs the question: if inflation is a lot higher than you know the charlatans in power have us believe, then real rates are much lower, decidedly negative. And if that's the case, then what's the case for slowdown? Um, or, or or put it another way, equities as a hedge, um, you know, as a as a as a as a call on uh, real earnings. Maybe they're not as maybe that's what the equity market's saying. I don't know, but I think your point is extremely well taken. So let me ask you. I think a lot of folks are aware of that argument. I put the question back to you though: if if that is the case, and I believe it is, and whether it's thirteen or it's six or whatever it is, it's not three. I think we all. I certainly believe in the direction you're talking about. What does it What does that mean to you about asset prices, and how would you be investing? Well, I, I think it's unequivocally going to wind up to be the second great depression. And I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. And 
I, I think some hedge, you know, if they don't make Bitcoin illegal, great. If they don't make holding bullion uh, gold illegal again, great. But I'm just, you know, I hear I hear everybody's bearish and and that makes me warm and fuzzy. Um, but when I hear inflation's coming down, I, it, it's just like dystopia. And, and um, good, good to hear that people uh, are aware of that. Thanks. Yeah, no, th th thanks for bringing that up. Um, okay, the man we've all been waiting for. No pressure, Ignoramus, but I got to know. <laughs> I got to know what's inspired your, your your avatar, both the name and the photo. Absolutely love it. So you're a man. I think it's four, four I think, years. Go for it. I think and so the the profile was inspired by this narrative that that Paul Krugman has that things are, are wonderful out there in the economy. And I think if we look at the numbers that scroll across our screen every day, I think those folks think that everything is wonderful and awesome. Um, <clears throat> but I'm reminded of some of the things I've heard from, I think, a, a person that we all know very well, Danny Moses, that talks about how, you know, the folks that watch the numbers that scroll across our screen every day got a lot of 08 very, very wrong because they, they are insulated from what's going on outside in the normal economy. And the time at which the normal economy catches up to the markets is often one that catches markets off guard. So I, I, think, I think there's a lot of um, hand-wringing at what we've seen with inflation uh, coming down. Um, that doesn't mean, that, that means that you know, we get disinflation, not deflation, um, and celebrating things like, uh, like folks making more money in their paychecks every day, but forgetting about the fact that very few of us actually experienced a 30% pay raise in the last three years. So I just think, I think that Krugman's narrative is, is, is ignorant. And so that's the, um, that is the reason for this profile. So, um, <clears throat> so anyway, I, I have a, a question to just pose it to the group here, just kind of wondering everybody's thoughts because it's one thing that's been on my mind. Um, I guess in 2023, I did not expect that the U.S. Treasury would completely take the baton, pass from the Federal Reserve to continue this liquidity binge that we've been on. And, you know, I can still see, based on the numbers that are reported in the TGA, that we have lots of liquidity still left. But there's going to be a point at which that liquidity gets drained. And we saw that we saw that we saw it this last year. Um, I think it was in May, which. Coincidentally, we were having discussions about extraterrestrials during congressional hearings at the same time that uh, we were discussing um, budget the congressional budgets. So I just I just wonder what folks think because I, I I think that markets respond to rate of change increases as much as or rate of change uh, decreases and increases as much as they respond to nominal increases and decreases. Um, but given given the level of debt that we have and that we're um, we're on track to have to, to having to finance 7.6 trillion dollars in debt this next year and by my calculations looks like it's going to result in something like 300 billion dollars of additional interest expense um, you know where's the liquidity going to come from next year uh, when when these discussions get rehashed again and by the way the last time that we had a discussion like this the uh the Speaker of the House was rejected five days later. And I, I just, I'm wondering if anybody else sees the same thing or if they think my thesis is, is wrong, that basically we just, 
it is unlikely that we're going to get the same kind of spending in 2024 that we did in 2023. And by definition, it means that we won't have the juice to create a rate of change increase. And so we would have to, when we have to comp numbers in 2024 against what we saw in 2023, that that actually becomes a headwind um, instead of a tailwind like we saw in 2023. So, um, so anyway, those are just some of the things that are in my mind. Just, I wonder what you guys are, are thinking when you kind of look at those numbers and their magnitude. Thanks, George. Well, I'll take a first shot at anybody else up here who wants to have at it. Um, the great Michael Howe, who's a good friend of this room. And if anyone's interested, just DM me. I'll get Michael's permission to send you something. Um, he's a better student of uh, liquidity trends than anybody I know. Uh, and he's been, I got to give him a lot of credit. Uh, he got the market very right in 22. And you know, I stayed too bearish too long into the fourth quarter of 22 and paid for it dearly with bad results this year, the ETF that I was running. Um, but he turned bullish fourth quarter last year because he was citing uh, liquidity trends. And um, he has been, and, and I think he has a lot of this in his Twitter feed, actually. So you don't have to rely just on stuff he's not writing. He he looks at the at the at the, at, the, at the deficits and uh, the amount of debt issuance that's going to uh, require, and he, I think he basically puts he says more debt uh, issuance means more liquidity. I.e., the only way to do this is they're going to have to buy the debt. So, like it or not, by hook or by crook, um, you're going to get uh, QE um, uh, in some form, um, whether they cheat, you know, by TGA account or whatever the hell it is. Um, the underlying numbers you're, you're pointing to, he would agree with. Uh, and at the same time, there's no political resolve to stop this. I mean, certainly ahead of, uh, an election year and the, uh, the budget compromise we had. So unless the markets revolt, you go back to, uh, you know, go back to the fourth quarter, was it October of 22 when you had the UK, the UK bond market blew up. And actually, you know, that was a shot across the bow that, that got, got Michael off of his bearish uh, leanings and got him more bullish, that, that they couldn't allow that to happen and the authorities would react. And so perhaps we started to see a little of that earlier this year. Anyway, his point is more debt means more liquidity. And uh, he winds up actually being reasonably sanguine about markets because it's, it's money that drives markets. I don't know if that answers your question or makes any sense, um, but I have a lot of time for Michael. Yeah, it, it does answer the question, but I, I think the question for me, maybe I should I should ask Michael directly, is what specifically is going to be the source? Because two trillion seems like a pretty big number for the whole rest of the world to come up with if we're not yeah. if we're going to be somewhere around a quarter of that. So yeah. just I think that that's just that's uh, still an open question here. But no, thanks, I appreciate it. Fair enough. All right. Any other questions or topics we've been for an hour and a half? Uh, any other anyone wants to ask a question from the, from the audience or anyone? Michael uh, Kramer, um, this has been a great space. I really, really appreciate your, uh, your, your your insights. Consider you a good friend. We'll have you back before too long. Dave Nikoski, always good to hear from you. And uh, Ignoramus Capital Management, with that name and that lovely face, you're always welcome here. So um, this has been great. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we'll do it again. Uh, might take a break here a little bit as we're going to the holiday season, but you know we've started the spaces against third one we've done in three weeks, and I anticipate we'll be doing a lot more in the future. Uh, again, may go may go radio silent for a week or two here, but uh, we'll be back. So again, thanks everyone. This has been great. Um, everyone, take care. Good night.